0: good to be around God's Word this morning, so please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. For those of you that are new to us here at Sovereign Grace, we are presently going through the Gospel of Luke together. We're just over halfway through, and this is a wonderful Gospel. This is a Gospel that is written by a man called Luke, who's actually a doctor. So he takes precision seriously in the way he goes about his life, and He's writing here a compelling narrative on the things of Jesus. He's writing it for a man called Theophilus and indeed ourselves so that we may have certainty concerning the things that we've been taught. So that we may know that Jesus really is who he says he is, that he really did do what he claimed to have done. And so that we're all clear now as his followers of what it really means to follow him. And right here in Luke chapter 16, we're in one of those passages where he is talking about the latter, i.e. what it really means to follow him. Now, when I read this, you will find this is a tricky passage, but it is a absolute keeper at the same time. And so if you want a title for this morning, I've got it The Wisdom of Generosity. Okay, we're, going to read, we're going to read together from verse 1 to the end of verse 15, and this is the word of the Lord. He also said to the disciples, there is a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him. that This man was wasting his possessions and he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management. You can no longer be my manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm too ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do. So then, what am I removed? What, so that when I am removed from my management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, well, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do I owe you? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into internal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. One who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is, not your own, which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Let's pray and ask the Lord for his help. Lord, I do thank you for your word. I thank you that once again, we find it ourselves seated beside you so that you can teach us what it means to follow you. Lord, I pray today we would have ears to hear and hearts that are attentive. Lord, how often it is in the midst of complication that when we see it, it becomes profoundly simple. And I pray we would experience that today, that through your spirit, our eyes would be open to the truth of this word, and it would really change our lives as it's designed to do. Lord, as we examine then the generosity of the wise, help us. In your precious name, amen. You know, last week together, as we examined God's word, we saw, I believe, that following Jesus really does cost. And it does, doesn't it? It's placarded throughout this text, throughout this Bible, and in chapter 14, it really comes alive before our eyes. If we're serious about following Jesus, it will cost us. There will be a relational cost to the endeavor of following Jesus. That's what he tells us. He wants to be first in our hearts and everybody else, our spouses and our children and our aunties and uncles and our friends. They need to be a very, very distant second. For our good and indeed their good, what is the best thing we can give to our families and friends? Jesus well, that means he needs to be first in our hearts. And so for our good and their good and his glory, he wants to make it clear. This is going to cost you relationally sometimes. As you really take my word seriously and follow me, it's not always going to be easy. It's going to cost us sacrificially. That's why he tells us this whole premise of to follow him means to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. The clue is in the word cross. It's not always going to be easy. There's going to be things about it that are difficult and costly and hard. But is it worth it? Oh, absolutely. A thousand percent, yes, it is worth following Jesus as our Lord and Savior. To know that our names are written in the book of life. To know that you're forgiven of your sin and redeemed and adopted into the family of God. To have the opportunity to be salt in the earth. To actually bring seasoning to situations and people that in a natural sense can be bland. But we can bring joy and encouragement and help and grace and faith. To know then that one day we will stand before our King of Kings and Lord of Lords and receive eternal reward. As we saw last week in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5, it's clear that he's spending time even now watching over our coming and going. Why? So that on that day, all the hidden things can be revealed. Why? So that each can be commended. Receive their rewards. Nothing you are doing in private or in public is being missed by Jesus. And one day he's clear, I'm going to reward you for that. I want to see even now what is going to be credited to your account. Is it worth following Jesus? Oh, a thousand percent, yes. But is it going to cost? Yeah. Yes, it it will. And here in this text, in chapter 16, Jesus himself starts to put some shoe leather on that on what it all means to follow him, in particular, with our money and our possessions. And the question that I think is placarded for each and every one of us to answer this morning is this. Here's the point of this text. What type of money manager are you? Not what type of money manager did you used to be when you were younger and seemed to have more wealth. Or not what type of money manager are you going to be in the future when you can just get things sorted out. You're going to be different. What type of money manager are you right now for the Father's glory? What type of money manager are you? You know, I would have to say, as a pastor, I don't find it easy talking about money. There is a suspicion in all our hearts when a pastor starts talking about money. It appears suspicious and shady immediately, does it not? Why are they asking me about money? And I feel that. I sense your eyes burning into me right now. And yet Jesus does not feel that same embarrassment at all. 15% of the recorded words of Jesus are talking about money and possessions. He talks more about money and possessions than he talks about heaven and hell combined. Out of the 39 parables that he gives us in the Gospels, 11 of them talk about money, possessions, and eternity. Just if we isolate the Gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 12 we have the parable of the rich fool. You remember him? He understands that God's entrusted him in a lot of things. What is he doing? I'm going to build a bigger barn. Why? So I can store it all up. So I can eat and drink and be merry. He's completely missed the point. And Jesus says, you don't realize that today your life will be taken away from you. What will I have done with the riches? In Luke chapter 16, then we have this parable of the dishonest manager. Later in the chapter, we have the story of the rich man and Lazarus. In Luke chapter 18, we have the story of the rich young ruler, the one who wanted to follow Jesus, but had a ton of stuff that he didn't really want to give up. And in Luke chapter 19, we have the story of Zacchaeus, whose life is completely transformed. And you can tell by the way he starts to give generously. It's quite clear in the Bible that Jesus isn't embarrassed talking about money in the way that we can be. And the reason for that is because to Jesus, he understands that where your treasure is, There, your heart will be also. All the way through Scripture, He always teaches us that you know what your finances and your faith are inseparably joined. What you do with your treasure and your possessions, that reveals where your heart is. These two things are inseparably joined. It's the way He's designed it to be, it's the way it works in all of the universe. And He wants our hearts, doesn't He? He wants our faith. So he wants to talk to us about our stuff and our finances. So I have two points this morning. It's not complicated. Number one, the parable attended, which is verse one through to 8a. And then point two, the parable applied, which is verse 8b through to the end of the text. But I come to it really with one hope. And it's the hope that for each and every one of us this morning, we would ask ourselves this most important question. What type of money manager am I? What am I doing with all that the Lord has entrusted to my care? What type of money manager am I? Two points Here's the first. Number one, the parable attended. And oh my, I want us to attend this parable this morning. The good news is this parable by very nature is in fact quite straightforward. There's no allegory or hidden meaning in this parable. It really is just a what you see, what you get parable. And it is a parable that is all about one dishonest house manager. Now it's clear that this guy effectively has nothing. Everything he has has been entrusted to him by his master. The challenge is he's been really dishonest with it. The master's given him all his stuff and he said, listen, I want to use it. I want you to use it for my glory and your good. The problem is with this dude is he's wasted it. He's probably been spending it on himself. He's probably been giving it away. Only knows what he's been doing, but he is wasting the master's money. The master's found out about it and he is upset. So much so that he fires him in verse two. Verse two. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be My manager. This man up until this point has been the household manager for the master. He's had all the resources to use for the master's glory and he's blown it. He's completely wasted what the master has entrusted to him and he's been fired. (laughs) I have never been fired, but I am told it is a nasty experience. I had a close friend once that was fired. He was in finances and he made a mistake. He made a significant mistake. It wasn't overly dodgy, but he definitely made a mistake. He was fired on the spot. And the guy from like HR came and he followed him and he gave him the box and he followed him to his desk and my friends loading all his stuff. And then the guy followed him out the building. I mean, that is embarrassment, is it not? That is the walk of shame. And that's exactly what happens to this man in this moment. He has been fired, he's been asked to leave the building. When the master returns, he wants to find no trace of him in the house. And as a result, it's quite clearly birthed some significant reflection in this man, wondering, what am I going to do with my life now? I mean, how am I going to earn any money? I've been fired, and so what am I going to do? How am I going to put food on the table? And that's what he's thinking about in verse three. Then the manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig. and I'm too ashamed to beg. He's wondering about, well, what next? What am I going to do now to earn money? And he's made two very quick conclusions. Well, number one, I'm not strong enough to dig. I mean, this guy's had an office job all his life. His hands are like full of fairy liquid stuff. I mean, his hands are like the the hand of a six month old. You know, this guy is not strong enough to dig. I remember when our Josh became a plumber and he had spent the last 19 years of his life studying, you know, things at school. And so after the first week, he's come back with calluses on his hands because as a plumber, you think it's a really good job? No, you dig a lot of trenches. That's what you do, Tell you when you're an apprentice. And so he's suffered and he's got through it. And this is great. He's become strong. Well, this guy's not up for that. He does not want an apprenticeship. I'm not strong enough to dig. So that's not an option. And I'm too ashamed to beg. I'm not going to start doing that. And it was shameful for a Jew to beg. There was an idea in Jewish tradition that it is surely better to die than beg. So I ain't doing like a manual job and I ain't begging. So what am I going to do? And it's then, as his mind starts to turn, that he comes up with this slippery and shady plan as to how he's going to get some friends going forward. This is what we read, verses 4 through 7. I have decided what to do, so that when I'm removed from my management, people may receive me into their houses. This is the plan. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, well, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. In order to gain favor, this guy who's just lost his job is trying now to get some friends so that as he walks out of his job, he'll always have somewhere to eat, he'll always have somewhere to sleep. He might even be able to get a job off somebody else. And So he comes up with his plan that I know. I'm going to call on my master's debtors. And so let me start with you, sir. Yeah. How much do you owe my master? A hundred measures of oil. Okay, we know what, here's the thing. Give me 50% and we'll call it quits. That's a lot. I mean a hundred percent that he's asking for would be eight hundred gallons. It would be a hundred and forty six olive trees. He's, and he's saying to him, Don't worry about half of it. Just just pay me what you can. And then he says to the other guy, Well, how much do you owe? And he's like, a hundred measures of wheat. He's like, Well don't you know, here's twenty percent off. It's bargain Friday, you know. I just want to help you. You've been a friend all these years. Let me help you. He does this, it says in verse 5, to all of his master's debtors. He's gone by one by one and giving them massive discounts. Now, you have to understand, in Jewish tradition and law, it was illegal for a Jew to charge another Jew interest. You couldn't do that. So what you would do is when you were selling somebody's goods or when they were buying it off you and you were giving them a bill, this bill would be massive because it would include the interest in it in the first place. It wasn't official interest. It was just all built in. And so giving somebody big discounts wasn't the end of the world. You weren't actually necessarily costing your master any money. You were actually just getting them to pay what they probably actually owed you. This man is shady. This man is slippery. But here's the point. He's doing it all because he's trying to grease the palms of those around him so that having just lost his job, he may still have food from people. He may still be able to hang out with people. Because everybody thinks he's a hero, right? He's just giving me 50% off, 20% off. You should come over for a drink. You need a job, I'll help you. What a dodgy, slippery, shady man this is. This, makes, this man makes car salesmen look like just to the right of Jesus. This man is a shocker in the way he is behaving. And as the disciples listen to this story, what they are expecting to come next in verse 8 is this the smackdown. I mean, they've already heard in other parables that Jesus says, when people are doing wrong, how they're ripped limb from limb. Do you remember that? And you're like, that's pretty gruesome. So this must be the bit where this guy's going to get the smack down. He's slippery. He's dodgy. He is suspicious in the way he operates. And so they're leaning in, waiting for the Jesus smack down. And he says this, verse 8a, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. What? The disciples' mouths would have been opened at this point. What do you mean? This should have been the point of smackdown. And yet this guy's being commended for his shrewdness. What is that all about? You see, these disciples in this moment, as they heard this response, would not have been able to understand what was taking place. This response would have been completely surprising to them. We're expecting a smackdown, but he's commending him for his shrewdness. It's a surprise, right? Well, clue: as Christians, when we're reading the Bible, particularly parables, look out for the surprises because there's the point. The surprise is the point. That's why he's using these parables because he's taking us along a path, and you, I know what's coming. I know what's coming. Ah! I didn't see that coming. Yes, that's the point. So what is he saying? Well, that takes me to my second point this morning. The parable applied. The point is in the surprise. We need to be looking out for the surprise. The surprise was for them and the surprise indeed was for all of us as well. Listen. The master did not approve of his ex employees' dishonesty and shadiness. That's not what he's commending him for. But he did commend his shrewdness in terms of his foresight, his planning, and astuteness as to his future. He's not applauding that he's been shady. He's applauding that you've actually taken the time to think about your future, the next 10, 15, 20 years of your life. I do think that's commendable. You've really thought ahead to how are you going to survive? What are you going to do? What are you going to invest in? I applaud you in that. And it's just as the disciples begin to get their head around this and close their mouths on this surprise that Jesus, perhaps, even with a smile on his face, begins to turn the whole story on them and indeed us. And he says this in verse 8b. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. What? Let me explain. This dishonest manager had indeed faced up to his reality. This dishonest manager, he knew that he had to prepare for his future. He refused to bury his head in the sand. And so this son of the world used all his intelligence and efforts and energies to do all he could to prepare for the years ahead. He knew, I've got to think about my future. I've got to actually prepare for my future. I might have 40 years left on this earth, and so I need to prepare. And so he uses all his energies and all his now and all his efforts to think through what can I do now that prepares me for these remaining years. And the master commends that. And yet in stark contrast to that, there are so many sons of light, so many Christians, so many followers of Jesus who stand on the edge of eternity and yet to fail to prepare for eternity at all. They bury their heads in the sand and live as if this this world is home. As if this dot of the next 40 years is all we have. And accordingly, though, they stand on the edge of the great line of eternity to come. They lack any vision and foresight and energies towards it. Here's the point. This shrewd manager did well to prepare for his next 40 years. He was wise in the way he prepared for his next 40 years. But what Jesus is helping us see here is as Christians, as sons of light, we would do well to prepare for our next 40 millennia. Because this isn't our home. This dot of life is not all we have. As Christians, we believe we're going to live with Jesus Christ for all eternity, do we not? And what he's saying is your friends, your unbelieving friends, plan really sharply and really really wisely for the next 40 years of your life. And yet so many Christians don't think about their first 40,000 years in heaven at all. So who's the wise one? What a clever way of talking. It's complicated when you first look at it. But when you realize what Jesus is saying is you realize he's a genius. And so he is. It's so easy for Christians to live on the dot of this life as if it's all we have, when in reality, we're not called to live just for this dot. We're called to live for this line of eternity, which is hundreds and hundreds of thousands of years to come. And what Jesus is saying is you need to prepare for that. If that's where you believe you're going, if you believe heaven is your home, what are you doing just preparing for this dot when this is all about the line of eternity? And accordingly, what we need to realize is as Christians, we are his money managers. Called to be shrewd with what we do with it. Because we're not just preparing for this dot. We're preparing for the line of eternity. You know, to see what he's saying here then is to be radically affected. Because you realize he is, really is calling us to put shoe leather on the cost of following by helping us to think about our finances and our stuff and our positions. And he goes ahead then and gives us four very short points of application, four lessons that he wants us to learn from this text as it pertains to how we prepare for eternity in light of our stuff, in light of our finances and their genius. Here's the first. It's the lesson that all that we have is actually the Lord's. Let me just let that sink in for a moment. Everything you have in your bank account, it ain't yours. You know that house that you've just purchased? Mm-hmm. It's not yours. The car that you came in, in? wonderful. It's not actually yours. It's his. So what we read in Psalm 24, verse 1, we read, The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world and all of those who dwell therein. Psalm 50 verses 10 to 12, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and all its fullness are mine. Then he seals the deal in Job 41 verse 11, everything under heaven belongs to me. (laughs) It belongs to him. My friends, as Christians, one of the things we need to understand right up front is everything we have is the Lord's. And I think it's so important to remember that because I think we so quickly forget, do we not? We think it's mine. We think of those credit cards. That's mine. I earn the money. It's mine. And he says, no, it's mine. It is not ours. It's the Lord's. What we are, are his money managers. His stewards, Randy Alcorn says it well. He says, we don't own the store, we just work here. (laughs) That's brilliant. You don't own the storehouse that he's given you. You just work here. You're just a money manager being used for him and for his glory. Everything we have is actually the Lord's. That doesn't mean it's wrong then to enjoy God's good gifts. We read about that in Ecclesiastes 5, verse 19. It's not wrong to enjoy some of what he's entrusted to us. Likewise, it's not wrong to own things before the Lord. We see that in Exodus chapter 22 and Acts chapter 2. It's not wrong to own things. It's not wrong to enjoy things. But what it is wrong is to think that everything I have is mine as if I own it. Because it ain't. It's the Lord's. See, so often we find giving hard as Christians because we think we own it in the first place. Giving gets a ton easier when you realize it wasn't yours at all. It was actually his. And all he wants you to do is give some of it back to him because he kind of owns it anyway. That kind of changes the whole mindset, does it not? It's not hard to give something away when you don't think you owned it in the first place. It's really hard to give it away when you think it's mine. We become like Gollum, don't we? Mine, precious. Why are they after my money? Well, get out of the golem thing. It's not yours. It's his precious. And he would like some of it back, please. The first thing that Jesus is helping us see here all the way through is all that we have is actually the Lord's. It, it, it's littered throughout chapter sixteen, but it's clear through the parable, even in the first place. You know, you get the idea of this manager and the master's money. Uh huh. It's the Lord and you're the you're the manager. That's where we begin. All that we have is actually the Lord's. And then, having helped us to understand that, he tells us in verse nine that we're to manage his money to win eternal friends. And that's the second lesson that he wants to point out to us. We're to manage his money to win eternal friends. That's what verse nine is about. Look at it. And I tell you, as money managers... Make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. What does that mean? Well, here's what it means. We're to use this money that he's entrusted to us, along with the various treasures and possessions that we buy, that we can also tend to think of ours that are actually his. We're to use everything we have to do what? Well, to win eternal friends. So here's the point. You can't buy somebody into heaven, can you not? It's not possible. You can't pay money and they become Christians. It is not possible. We can't use our money to save people in that way. We can't buy to save people. But we can be generous with our money to advance the furtherance of the gospel. And that's his point. When you use your money wisely, both locally and extra locally, We put people in a situation by the grace of God where they can actually hear the gospel. And by God's grace, they may get saved to that gospel. And by God's grace, you may meet people in heaven that one day have you in their homes. And it all roots back to a show of generosity you gave right here. And kindness and mercy to prepare a moment for them to hear the gospel. It's genius. When he's saying unrighteous wealth, he's not talking about naughty money. He's just using worldly money. The money that we all use here for loads of things. Use it wisely and use it to gain eternal friends. Rosaria Butterfield, I think, says it well. She says, the gospel always comes with a house key. That's brilliant. She's talking there about this verse. The gospel always comes with a house key. When, we, we, when you think thinking, I don't really want to open my home to hospitality. Stop there. It's not your home. It's God's home, and he would like you to open the doors to bring people in. Why? So they may hear the gospel. So they may hear about Jesus. So that they may experience your generosity and think, you're a really good person. I really like it. Can I come again? You can. What is so different about you? You're so much more generous than all my other friends. You know what's more generous, What's different about me? Jesus has changed my life, man. I don't just want to open my home, everything I have with you, because ultimately it's not mine anyway. It's the Lord's. We get to use what he's entrusted to us locally and we get to use what he's entrusted to us extra locally, don't we? When we give to things like international care ministries and covenant mercies, which we're going to be hearing about in a few weeks and sovereign grace, global missions. We're giving to people that we'll probably never meet. But one day Jesus is saying there may come a day when you're walking the streets of heaven and somebody goes ahead and invites you in their home and they say, you know what? You never met me, but in part I'm saved because of you. You know that gift that you gave all that time ago? You gave it and a church was planted in this country. And through this church, I heard about Jesus. I gave my life to him and now heaven is my home. Thank you. Thank you for giving that seed money all those years ago. It changed my life. It's so beautiful. And Jesus himself is saying, listen, that's what I want you to do. I want you to use your money to gain eternal friends. Use what I've entrusted to you. All the resources, that car, load it out. That house, open your doors. That food on your table, share it with people. Why? Because that's why I've given you it. I've blessed you so that you could be a blessing to others. Not so you can keep it all. I blessed you so that you can be a blessing to other people and use it for my glory and use it to get eternal friends. What a day it will be when we gather in the heavenly realms and we meet people, maybe for the first time, and we played a part in their gospel story just to giving faith to the Lord. Friends, I want to ask you, how are you going at being his money managers in this regard? are you likely to meet in heaven through your generosity here? Who in your communities are you opening the doors up where they're going to look back and go, you know what? Thank you for being so generous with me. It was sitting around your dinner table. thought I heard about Jesus and it changed my life. Thank you for opening your home to me. We're his money managers. We don't own it. He owns it. We just steward it. So what else are we to do with this money? Well, he tells us then, in verses 10 to 12, which is my third point in this lesson, that we're to manage his money to earn eternal rewards. So first up, we're to understand that all I have is actually the Lord's. Then we're to manage his money to win eternal friends. And then he tells us we're to manage his money to earn eternal rewards. It's what we read about in verses 10 through 12. It says, One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you true riches? And if you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? See, here's the reality. We are consistently being tempted as Christians, particularly in first world countries, to take this world as home. To give our entire lives to the dot. I mean, my granddad is 101 this year. It's ridiculous. He tells me every time, I wish I was dead. It's not great being old. But imagine you live to 101. That ain't very long in life of millennia and millennia and millennia and millennia to come. And yet we spend all our time and money here. And what Jesus is saying all the way through scriptures, don't do that. You're constantly being tempted to take this world as home. The world tempts us. Our flesh tempts us. I want to live my best life now. Really? I think I might save that for heaven because this ain't that great. Where do you want your best life? Do you want it now in the dot, Or do you want it in the line of eternity? The world and our flesh and the evil one are constantly saying, live here, live here, live here. And Jesus says, "Eh, that's an error. In Matthew 6, verses 9 through 20, he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. See, Jesus isn't against laying up for ourselves treasures on heaven. He's just saying, you're a dope if you do that all in this earth. That ain't going to work too well because moths come in and rust destroys and thieves break in and steal. You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Enjoy it in eternity, not now. Give yourself to that day, not this day. And that's what he's saying here in verses 10 through 12 about being faithful with that which he's entrusted to us. He's saying, listen, all that I've entrusted to you, be faithful with it. Why? Because if you're faithful with the little I give you here, imagine how much I'm going to give you there. Imagine how much I'm going to reward you with there. It's all in the context of faithful rewards. You know, giving faithfully and generously here on this earth, as you examine your Bibles, in a primary way, that means giving to the local church. In the Old Testament, that's exactly what they did. It's just they didn't call it the local church. They called it the temple. And to the temple, they would tithe. They would give the first 10% of everything that God provided into their house. They would give it to the Lord. One of the most precious experiences I've ever had was actually in Nepal, where they are poor. And then they come up and they give tithes and they're bringing in notes and they're putting it in all these baskets. And then there is a whole section over here where they're bringing oil and rice and wheat and produce, 10% of all that the Lord's. It is like Old Testament, but it is a happy place. They're so happy to do it. And it's beautiful Did you just realize these people are given to the storehouse of God out of their poverty. Well, that's what they used to do it to the temple. They used to give the first 10% of their income to the Lord. They'd give it to the temple. It would be used for the building and maintenance of the temple. It would be used for the full-time support of servants, i.e. the priests and the Levites. And it would be used for the temple mission. Things that the temple were to give themselves to, all this resource would be used for that. And in the New Testament, giving to support the work of the new temple, i.e. the church, remained the priority for each and every Christian. God's still building the temple. It's just, it's no longer out of bricks and stone. He tells us it's out of people from each tribe and language and nation. And he's building us together into a beautiful dwelling place for him. And so as soon as you turn over the book after the gospels and you get to Acts, what are they doing? They're giving to the local church. They're tithing and giving offerings to the local church. Why? Well, for the building and maintenance of the church. It's no longer bricks and stone. It's people, but people need equipping by the grace of God to know and apply and proclaim the gospel. It's given for the full-time support of the church servants, i.e. the pastors and the staff. And it's given for the church's gospel mission. And for centuries, that's what people have done. Sadly and grievously, we live in a time of history where ecclesiology is shot. So now we'll just give wherever we want. That is not the way it's been for about 5,000 years. They gave to the temple and then they gave to the church. That's what it would have meant. To follow Jesus. That's what it meant. To honor the Lord and give back to the Lord's storehouse some of that which is entrusted to us. If we're faithful then, if we're going to want to be faithful with our giving, I submit to you, that's where it starts. And this is where the rubber hits the road. And this is where you're starting to get a bit, my seat feels hot. You know, I get it. This is where it begins. And then there's a secondary way of giving faithfully. We give, it tells us in chapter 14 and then chapter 16, we give to our neighbors give to those with physical needs? Remember chapter 14 and he's telling us, hey, don't just keep inviting over people that can repay you. What about the widows? What about the orphans? What about those with physical needs? Give to them. Bless them. Use some of what I've entrusted to you to bless them, to help them, the needy. And then in chapter 16, yeah, take care of those with spiritual needs too. You need to entertain them and love them and and give to them. Why? So that they may hear the gospel, so that they may get eternal dwellings. Use some of what I've entrusted to you for the Father's glory. Why is all this important? Why is generous giving all important? Well, here's why. Because he wants to reward you on that last day. That's why the Apostle Paul tells his church, I'm looking for what can be credited to your account. Today, that would be called spiritual abuse. 2,000 years ago, that was called good pastoring. Thank you for helping us to prepare for our eternity. It's exactly what Jesus wants us to do here. This manager was shrewd because he was busy preparing for his next 40 years, but he was also dumb because he should have been preparing for his next 40 millennia. And Jesus is effectively saying, don't say, that's the same mistake. Don't just prepare for here, prepare for there. And then he tells us in verse 13, which is the fourth part of this wonderful lesson. He tells us, we all have a very real decision to make. And we do. Church, we all have a decision to make. And this is what he says in verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Tim Keller says it this way in in commenting on this chapter. He says, you cannot serve both God and money, Jesus says. And yet all too often, we think we can. (laughs) Is that not true? We are so good at compromising. He tells me I can't serve God and money. Mm, I think you're, yeah, anyway, I'll try. Because I like the idea of both. I mean, let's be clear, Jesus. I have two kids and I love them. And I have two employees, employers, and I, I am grateful for them. I think I can have two masters. I should be sweet. And Jesus is the maker of heaven and earth, the one who knitted you together in your mother's womb, the one who knows you better than yourself and wants to do all he can to guard you, guard you away from false idols, says, hey, church, listen up. You can't. You have to choose. Are you going to love me? Are you going to love money? Because they're opposite sides of the track. See, sometimes I think we like to think they're just like a train track. We can do them both at the same time. Whereas he says, no, no, this is a crossroads. What do you want to do? See, if we're going to follow Jesus, if we're going to choose him, what that's going to mean quite clearly is generous giving. It's going to mean understanding all that I have is not my own. It's actually his. And so I need to be generous with it. I need to be generous with the church. I need to be generous with others because I want to store for myself treasures in heaven. You know what happens then? Jesus tells us, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You know what that means? You're going to fall in love with Jesus again and again and again. You're going to start to think about heaven like you never thought about it before. You'll be invested in the church like you've never been invested in the church before. Why? Because your money's going there. And as your money goes there, your heart goes there. So many people are not looking forward to heaven because they don't give anything towards it. So their heart isn't there. It's like, Someplace in Cherrybrook or something. I don't know what's going on. If you have your heart to be in heaven, then give your resources there. That's what happens when we choose to follow Jesus, when we're devoted to him. But if we're going to be devoted to money, we ain't going to be doing generous giving. I'll give you like 10 bucks every now and again, but that's more than enough right now. It's expensive. So instead, we, we give ourselves here. We pursue money. You know what happens? It never, ever satisfies we always want more. We get one thing, we need another thing. That doesn't say, I, I need something else. And we don't realize that all this time, we're walking away from Jesus all the time. We don't even realize. We just think, no, I'm doing both. I'm loving Jesus. I have no idea. No, you're right over there. Why? Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You'll be busy doing all you can to build your nest right here and it'll be all that you're excited about, but it will never satisfy you. And all the time, I think Satan in the corner is just doing this. I completely distracted them away from life. Yes, you're a Christian. Yes, you know Jesus. You wasted your life and you failed to prepare for your future. Good one. Jesus knows that. He knows the way it works, and so he couldn't be clearer. You cannot serve God and money. You have to make your choice. And, my friends, so do we. We all have a very real decision to make. The Pharisees immediately make their decision. Verse 14 The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed him. You are a joke! What a ridiculous sermon, but good try, Jesus. Try again next time. What a joke. Prior to now, they've only been grumbling against him. Now they're ridiculing him. It's advancing as we go through the gospel. I'm not only grumbling, you're an idiot. They made their choice. They think everything he's saying is a load of rubbish. What a joke. Well, Sovereign Grace Church, I want to encourage you would we not make the same mistake as the Pharisees? All that you have is actually the Lord's. None of it. Maybe go home and look at your bank account and say to yourself, this is not mine. Walk around your house as you're pulling into the drive and remind yourself, this is not mine. When you get in the car, in the car park, first things you should say, this is not my car. This is the Lord's, I'm like loaning it. Get into the habit of realizing this is not mine. We're to manage his money to win eternal friends, to use it. That's how he wants us to use it. He's the owner. I want you to use it to win friends in eternity. And we're to manage this money to win eternal rewards for ourselves, not storing up for ourselves treasures on earth, but storing up for ourselves treasures on heaven. And we all have a very real decision to make, whether we want to do that or whether we don't. And I can't help you with that bit. That's your choice. But I do want to ask you this: What type of money manager are you? If your group leader said to you this week, "Hey, this is what I'm thinking." Dave's message. Oh, it's a good one. Well, here's what we do: Let's all bring our budget to Gospel Community this week, and let's share it around and see how we're going. Would you die on the inside a little bit there? Or would you be like, no, that's okay. It's not my money anyway, it's the Lord's. And I think it might be helpful to get some feedback from people. It's funny, there's two things that as Christians we're really private about. Sexual intimacy and money. Don't want to talk about those things. Well, I'm not going to talk about sexual intimacy right now because there's people that that's going to be helpful with. But money, we need to talk about that. And we should be open, I think, to talking about it in our gospel communities because it's all the Lord's money anyway. And so to have others seeing how we spend it. I'm not saying do that in gospel communities, by the way. I don't want gospel communities thinking, oh, that's a good idea. No, don't do that. But what I am saying is you, before God, should be able to look at your money and think, I think I'm going all right. I think I'm going all right with how I'm using your money, Lord. Lord, help me. Help me be sensitive to your spirit. Help me understand what you want me to do with this for your glory. I'm so grateful to my wife on this. Usually when our go forward fund comes up, I pray and I ask the Lord for help and he gives me a figure. And I'm usually thinking, man, that's generous. And my wife does the same. And she says, oh, I had a figure as well. It was just twice the amount of yours. And you're like, okay, that's, that's, that's good. We'll, um, we'll think about that. And we always go with her um, because it's right to do. She's always right in our home. And but I'm grateful because I think she lives applying this. She really, bottom line, understand it's not ours anyway. Give it. Church, what type of money manager are you? I want to encourage you, just in closing, living this way, listen, living this way does not save you. You are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, he sings over you with acceptance and forgiveness and pure delight, and he always will. This doesn't add to that. But as his followers, this is something that we get to joyfully do. It's an opportunity he is giving us and saying, what do you want to do? How do you want to prepare for your first 40,000 millennia in eternity? Jim Elliot once said he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. May that be our story. Many thought Jim Elliott was very unwise. In light of eternity, he was a genius. May we be like him. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for your word. And I thank you for the way it speaks to us and enlightens things in our hearts. And Jesus, I thank you that you speak with such wonderful wisdom. Lord, forgive us for times when we read your word and really have not much of a clue what you mean. Thank you that as we wait on you, your Holy Spirit illuminates it to us. And when it makes sense, it dazzles us. Oh Lord, would you help us now to do the hard work of application? We're not blessed through hearing. We're challenged through hearing. We're blessed through doing. Lord, I pray for each of us. Would we tend to our budget this week? Would we tend to our treasure?